1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast.
2: You're listening to The Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 186 for March 25th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about life after the virus and what it means for archaeology and CRM. So keep your distance because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California in total isolation.
3: Hello. Good afternoon. Well, not total isolation. My kids are still (laughs) home with me. Thank God. They're all here.
1: And Heather, also in California in total isolation.
2: I have kids, two cats and a dog (laughs) and a husband. There you go.
1: And Stephen, with his wife Ruckus, and a pile of pens in Calgary, I'm in a whole different country, <laughs> a whole different country all right, uh, and I am actually in the field. I'm down here in Ridgecrest, California.
3: Do they have uh toilet paper still in Canada because we're almost out of here
4: uh <laughs> some places um they, they put the throttle on the the purchasing, I think early enough uh the last time I was at the store, yeah. they still had some, but it was the shelf was definitely uh, lighter than it should have been. Yeah, we're going to be have,
3: having to ration each square now, I think. I have a feeling that's going to be the longest lasting thing that we'll have to count the squares so that we don't go over.
4: Well, the, the Rage of the Future is, is going to be like Japanese toilet seats. So, um, Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really glad. I'm really glad we have a bidet at home. Uh, we have it attached to our toilet, our main toilet upstairs. And it's great. Although we left Reno a few days ago to come down to this project in California. And, you know, we never, I never even bought toilet paper during the whole time that people were doing it because I think we had just stocked up with another, another package of, um, you know, Costco toilet paper, like a few days before that, before the whole crazy thing happened, because that was our normal time. Like we were out, right? So we had to buy one. So I didn't even think about it. And then everybody started buying it. And now we came down here to Ridgecrest. I didn't think about bringing any with us because it's not the kind of thing you pack when you're going in the field. Well, you pack one roll. It's in your bag, (laughs) but you don't pack like a whole bunch of them. And (laughs) and, uh, now we're down here in Ridgecrest. This Airbnb actually has two bathrooms, which we didn't know when we saw the listing. And there's one roll of toilet paper in each, and not a damn roll in the rest of the town. So, oh boy. Should, should get should get interesting here shortly. But as a friend of mine on Facebook pointed out, there's a shower next to each toilet. So,
2: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> shampoo, shampoo and conditioner. <laughs> Champion conditioner
3: is next. I thought you were going to say that you got to a house that has toilet paper and you'd just forgotten because you're so used to the bidet. I was like, no, no. Remember, you got to use a piece of toilet paper and you have to use it, right? Like, just because you don't see the bidet doesn't mean you're opting out now we're still using it. Should have packed the bidet.
1: Yeah, I saw
3: i know right <laughs> just use your camelback you about it so. just use your camelback just kind <laughs> oh, of a, put the bag on the ground and just use the step on it
2: so steven step the, the, it's
1: actually not the worst <laughs> idea
2: the hope is with canada i've been seeing multiple memes for hockey fans that because they canceled the nhl that this will be the biggest impetus behind canada coming up with a cure so we're counting on you. <laughs> well,
4: they, got, they got nothing else to do.
1: So
2: <laughs>
1: there you go. You know, I haven't, Stephen, I haven't heard anything about Canada in this whole thing, yeah, of course. So what, it, it, I mean, how, how is it, how is it up there? And, and are you guys just making fun of us or is it about the same?
4: It's pretty much the same. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, there's a lot of making fun of you, uh, but that there doesn't have to be a pandemic right like that's nothing new um (laughs) right (laughs) but but yeah um there's a lot of closures uh and and it's wildly inconsistent of course because it's in the same way that in the us it's by state right like certain states are doing certain Mm -hmm. things um and and other states are like you know instead of closing everything why don't we throw a giant party (laughs) same sort of thing like uh, different provinces are doing different things but uh, in in generally, the, mm-hmm. I, I think there is a strong push, uh, at least on the social media uh, side, because I haven't really left my house. Uh, but th- but there's a strong push to do the uh, social di- distancing thing. And, and so I, I think that mm-hmm. that's still, I, I think that's kind of on par with the U.S. I think that in, in some okay. ways, Canada would is going to deal with it better than the U.S. A uh, tenth of the population, there's, you know, it's wider spread, it's... Uh, um, mm-hmm. there's actually a healthcare system, <laughs> you know, like, like the problem, one of the problem concerns with the U S is it's like, it's, it's already starting kind of behind as far as healthcare goes. Right. Like it's, it's yeah. like you guys weren't doing good when there wasn't a pandemic and now there's a pandemic and you, you don't have anything to buffer with uh, and things are, I'm going to say slightly better in Canada because at least it's further ahead Um, at the start. Mm-hmm. you know, how, how the system weathers the, the pandemic is, you know, I guess will be remain to be seen in the next few weeks.
1: That that actually brings me to one of the first points that I wrote up here. Let's talk about travel uh, as it relates to archaeology, because uh, and Stephen, you can keep going on this if there's any issues you guys are having up there, because you like you mentioned, you're more spread out. People are clustered into fewer cities that are farther apart than, say, generally in the United States. So when you do archaeology, you probably have to travel quite a bit anyway. Are there any travel restrictions up there yet that are that are having an impact on that? Or are you guys not even really started your field season in full swing yet?
4: Uh, it's negative 20 outside. Um. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, All right, it's, then it's like it, it was nice. And then we had a cold front come through <laughs> and um, nobody, nobody's in field work right Uh <laughs> I, I don't know of any travel restrictions off the top of my head. Um, yeah, there might be some things w- uh, for flights, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. in in general, I, I can't think of any real uh, travel restrictions. Um, but yeah, like you know, when we go out in the field, you sometimes hop in a truck with your you know coworkers for eight nine hours. Um, so sure. if, if any of the, those people are, you know, happen to be carrying the uh, the virus, then Probably all of you will by the end of it.
1: Right. Well, and we have to note that it isn't airborne, right? So for that to happen, somebody has to sneeze, touch their face, touch their own saliva, touch something else in the truck, and then somebody else has to touch that thing. So it comes down to... You could still be safe in a car with four people as long as they're smart, right? As long as they're smart about how they're how they're doing stuff. And hell, this is how we get the cold anyway. The common cold is transmitted the same exact way. And it's like, you know, we don't seem to concern ourselves with that too much, even though 20,000 people died this year from the common cold or well, from the flu, you know, drastic version of the cold. But the point is, yeah, we can still be in a car together. Just don't be an idiot. You know what I mean? And call out the people that are being idiots, because that's a big thing with archaeology. You're totally right. There are crews right now all over the country, maybe not all over the country, um, but definitely in like California and Arizona and places where uh, Texas places where you can still do field work right now because of the weather where people are jumping into field crew vehicles in the morning. And, uh, you know, it's. It's possible. It's doable. Just be smart about it. They could, you know, half the people in the car could have the virus. And as long as they're smart about it, the other people are not going to get it. That's not how it's transmitted right now. So it's like you can sit in a car next to somebody with AIDS. It doesn't mean you're going to get AIDS, you know, unless there's some shenanigans going on in that car. But then otherwise, you're not going to get it.
4: Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, if, if the you know road trip is long enough, though, you know, the, the likelihood of something, some accidental transmission is there right like um you're sure. gonna rotate through sure. and maybe you know like yeah okay yeah you wiped down the steering wheel but maybe you didn't do a good enough job doing that or um sneezes sneezes and i, I mean everybody mm-hmm. touches their face right like i i mean yeah we, we try to be cognizant of it but like eventually someone's gonna like lean their chin on their hand or something right like it it, it happens and and i i feel like yeah, you, you can take you can take measures to reduce the likelihood of it, but it can still happen. Sure, um, and and still, yeah, you know, like the longer time you're encapsulated with someone who's sick, um, the more likely you are you're going to end up getting it as well, and and you might not ever show the show the show, show the uh, um, symptoms, right? Like you can be asymptomatic while this happening. Um and, and that's where the danger is. It's because you you think everybody in the truck's doing okay and one person's caring. Right.
2: You know, I think I think that this is interesting in, it's exposed a, a lot of misnomers um, by people who are not field people. Um, you know, I work mm-hmm. for an environmental companies, so we have a lot of, you know, NEPA, CEQA specialists and other technical, mainly the project managers, uh, NEPA, CEQA specialists that have no idea what we do in the field. When they see us in the field, they're thinking that we're walking, you know, far distances. Like they think of transects, they they don't see us, like right now I have a project where we're working in a trench and we're, have a, a discovery and we are literally you know, on top of each other. We're trying to fit in this tiny little trench and still excavate and people uh, just, they just don't they don't understand the nature of some of our work, and just like Stephen was saying, I I agree with him. I mean, a lot of and, and you too, Chris. I agree. There's there's a lot of um, control that that can be done and and uh, prevent, you know. Uh, exposure. And so there's no reason to have this major alarm. But at the same time, I think it's been interesting how this is, you know, everybody's freaking out in the offices saying, oh my gosh, you know, we have to have the distancing. Everybody's got to work at home. And oh, but field work. Oh, you guys are just fine. You guys can go out in the field and no problem. And they yeah. don't not even, they have no idea what we do. And it's it's really kind of right. mind boggling that they have, they don't realize that we are in very, they, they just, it doesn't even cross their mind. So I've just found that interesting.
1: Yeah. And in excavation context, you're, you're pretty close to each other. And then mm-hmm. not only that, but I mentioned something in relation to this in the, in the Southeast United States and probably elsewhere, I think the Midwest does this as well in a lot of cases, but uh, double occupancy hotel rooms. Yep. I mean, they're going to have to bid projects that don't have that during this, right. If they're still doing work, They really shouldn't be sharing hotel rooms, uh, to be honest.
3: Or they're going to have to actually, in fact, give people individual rooms rather than billing for individual rooms and then double bunking everyone.
1: (laughs) Well, that is another problem. Yeah, but you're right. You're right.
3: Going back to the whole travel thing uh, here, the UC system is like pretty much shut down. Well, it's weird. It's like shut down as far as, you know, all the functionalities of the university but then still open for business, right? So, um, you know, libraries are open, but you're not supposed to go to campus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody's supposed to go to campus and teach, but you're still supposed to somehow lecture. Uh, You know, in this semester, I'm teaching an artifact analysis class. So I'm supposed to somehow teach about artifact analysis without students actually analyzing or looking at any artifacts. (laughs) Um, So like, you know, that whole thing, as far as the way the university is working, it's in a weird state. However, I don't think they're giving anyone tuition back. On the other hand, the the can the travel thing has pretty much come down like a blanket, and but it's once again not applied in even way. So you know, I'm working with folks. We're trying to plan our upcoming uh, summer research, and uh, our our first trip that we usually do to Saint Croix to um, deliver the artifacts back, and or at least the data from the artifacts. You know we don't always have all the artifacts uh, processed, but. You know, we go down and work with our collaborators and stuff in the spring or in the winter. And then that, you know, we get the permit to go next summer. Well, that was supposed to happen next week. And that's not going to happen because Mm -hmm. not because the university said we couldn't travel. It said that we couldn't get reimbursed. Well, first they said that if we traveled, we would have to go through a 14 day quarantine. So that means that I'm out because I have to teach. Right. But now that's a moot point. Then they said they're not going to reimburse anyone for travel. So how can I afford to, you know, pay for an entire field crew out there on my own money when we got grandma. So essentially we're still able to go and do it if we can pay for it all our own selves and then also take two weeks off after we're done to, to self quarantine ourselves. So, you know, uh, in the wake of that grad students, projects that are going to happen. I mean, that's an interesting thing because graduate students, a lot of times are on fellowships, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that they've set it up, if you're actually a a graduate student instructor or a a teaching administrator, a TA, you're getting money, you're actually a university employee. But if you were just doing the semester on a fellowship and the fellowship's predicated on the fact of doing research or some other kind of work, and then they shut your lab down, or you can't actually go to the field site, Not all of the grants will. uh, So first of all, you could say, congratulations, you just got money to go do research. Oh, wait a minute. Your research isn't done. You know what? We'll put all that money back and you can apply next year. So they've got to (laughs) wait like an entire year before they go and get data, right? So you could, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. on the bigger note, if your fellowship lab shuts down and you can't do your research, then how are you, you don't get the work from home halftime thing, right? Like you, you were on this fellowship, you're supposed to do work. And the state doesn't have a system for people like that. I mean, either we just give them the money and then shut the lab down and say, "Okay, well, your entire year of funding is now gone, even though your lab was shut down. Apply next year. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can get it back. Or what's happening for a lot of folks for summer research is say, congratulations, you got the grant. But, you know, since your travel shut down, this just goes on your resume and then apply next year. and We'll give you the money if you win again.
1: Right.
2: Yeah, I think the uh, the upside of this whole situation is that necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> and I do think that people are starting to look outside the box and how can we communicate and how can we actually this actually and, and Chris, you should love this <laughs> <laughs> because this means that the technology and the abilities that we have right now, technologically, that we're not taking advantage of are now going to be forced into into the forefront or we're not going to be able to do work. So such as, you know, 3D imaging of artifacts and, you know, there's so many ways that if we had already been taking advantage of technology and embracing it, that um, the impact on our ability to do work could certainly have been lessened. It, It certainly would be an impact, but it wouldn't be as grave as it is right now. So I just, you know, I think that's... Hopefully, that this will be a silver lining and people start thinking outside the box because I don't think that this is going to be the last time that something like this happens. And um, there's really no reason why we should be so strapped to everything, you know, from being you know paper based to not being able to do conduct any analysis or you know now we have tribal entities that are asking more and more for that which comes out of the ground to go back into the ground to be reburied so we're not going to have collections which i actually you know it's probably good for a whole other podcast but i'm not a fan of anyway i'm a fan of utilizing existing collections but if we can minimize the collections that are ending up in boxes and never touched again or looked at again, so just looking at you know some really broad ideas of being a lot more efficient and technologically savvy in our in our um, discipline, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, it's uh, interesting you say that because. I had seen a news report that said that uh, the virus lasts longer on more porous surfaces like cardboard and paper. So that's something <laughs> to consider. I'm just going to put that mm-hmm. out there. But also, we just recorded a whole Archaeotech podcast on Thursday, and we talked about working remotely and things you can do in archaeology. And you brought up something I didn't even think about, which is, you know, things like Wild Note, which I'm using on this project that I'm on right now, allow mm-hmm. us to... Maintain that distance because we can all have, you know, I'm out here with one person right now and I've got two other crew members, actually four showing up tomorrow and we can all though... Take a point. uh, Record the information about an artifact. We're in radio communication. We don't need somebody doesn't need to come over there. We're recording mostly isolates out here because of the nature of how these things are defined. And but I don't need to go over there for every single isolate. I can radio in the number and then they can just record it on their device. And it all goes back to the same central server Mm -hmm. and uh, somebody else in some other place, whether they're in the office or working from home, can now start processing those data. So that's a good point to end this segment on. Let's pick this up on the other side and continue talking about some of these uh, limitations, but then also some of the benefits, because I think you're right. This could be a boon to certain technologies that we should have been doing all along. So back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencast and use the code CRMARC. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 186. And, you know, I'm hoping that one of the knock-on effects of this virus happening, because we're, just so people have context, we're recording this on March 15th. Uh, So you're hearing this a little bit later. For all I know, there could be the only three people left in the entire planet listening to this podcast. So thank you.
3: Yeah, and I was going to say, it could be like (laughs) World War Z already, and you have way bigger things to care about than this podcast.
1: Right, right. I know uh, just a brief aside, Um, we watched when it came out a few years ago, there was a TV show that I liked at first, but then it just got weird and I stopped watching it was um, uh, Last Man on Earth. And basically this guy thought he was the only one left. And it was some kind of virus that killed everybody. And it was just crazy because it it happened fast. So he was able to go around grocery stores were still full of groceries. You know, he could, you know, still get things. And it was just an interesting, uh, interesting thought. I've been thinking about that lately. But anyway, it's interesting talking about what we were doing at the last segment here about different technologies and things that maybe we should have been doing all along. But let's not dwell on the past. Let's talk about the future and think that what can we do? Do now that will actually help us now, but also be helpful on into the future? Because there's a lot of people embracing video conferencing. There's a lot of people who didn't think they could work from home, but now realize they could work from home. I've always said that most Cultural or even environmental departments shouldn't have these big, massive offices where people go to office and into a cubicle every single day. It's 100% complete waste of money for projects that are on a budget. I mean, if you're already with a big engineering firm and they already have a big building because they can afford it because they build bridges and stuff, great. But if you're a small archaeology firm or any size pure archaeology firm or pure CRM firm, I should say then maybe you should be saving money because our, mar- our margins are already tight and people can work from home. People can work from anywhere they need to. They don't need to go into the office to write a report or do site records. And if you're like, well, I need to be able to communicate with this person. All right. There's 700 ways you can do that without walking down the hall. You know, Let's just think about this. And now I'm glad that people are forced to think about this. Now they're forced to say, okay, what works? What doesn't work as far as remote communication goes? You know, We we communicate via Slack uh, on the Archaeology Podcast Network here. And I'm on like 16 other Slack teams. I have Slack teams where I'm communicating with people on Australia. I'm communicating with people around the world. I'm communicating with another company over in with with the Wild Note staff, many of which are down in Southern California. And it doesn't stop us. And we've been doing that naturally for years. And now people that aren't used to that or have resisted that are now, I should hope, coming around to that idea and realizing that it's not the big, bad, scary thing that they thought it was.
2: Yeah, I think um, for one thing that's kind of going to be a detriment to that is that archaeologists are notoriously unorganized and they're a lot of times not Mm -hmm. really (laughs) self-motivated. And the people that are drawn (laughs) to this... uh, discipline many times are you know, they really like to have, and and I, I get it because as long as you understand what your limitations are, but they like to have a task put in front of them, finish that task and feel, you know, that sense of accomplishment almost where there are some people that just do much better clocking in, doing their eight hours, clocking out and, and leaving and then being able to leave it at home. And you know, there's, it's going to require organization. It's going to require accountability. There's, you know, it's an easy fix to that is to have an office where people have to come in and they have to look busy, which is inefficient in and of itself, but at least they're accountable where, you know, you have some people that just do not do well in a work at home environment. Um, They're just not productive. But the way to fix that is that you have people that are organized and that are staying on top of it and are making sure that you are accountable without having having the easy fix of being in the same area as you. So I do think that, you know, I see we just so many times because it's feast or famine. And because, you know, we have all this time then all of a sudden everything's piled on us at one time and we're just trying to keep our head above water. And so we're not organized or efficient in the way we that we go about business. And then that just, um, you know, it, it's a vicious circle. And so I do think yeah. that people need to be a lot more conscious in how they're organizing their projects and how they implement their their tasks and efforts and how they delegate.
1: Yeah. And I think what this is going to do is, you know, project management in archaeology is it's not that hard, right? I mean, we don't have when you really break it down compared to other project management in other industries, we don't have that many moving parts. I mean, we've got a couple, Mm -hmm. you know, really well-defined steps. And yet people still manage to screw that up. But I think we're going to really find who's good at project management and who's not (laughs) in the circumstance. Exactly. If people are... Yeah, if people are doing exactly what you said, trying to control logistics and and people remotely, I mean, you're going to have to be real organized and make sure that mm-hmm. you've got you know a handle on what's going on and and don't just rely on email. You know, if you have to go right. back and search through your email for you know a hundred different emails that you were supposed to look for you need to have some place where you're keeping track of all this stuff. I can recommend Trello. It's free and and it helps me organize things, but it does take a minute to wrap your head around it for certain people. But there's other stuff out there, plenty of free things. Just find something that, you know, you can use to organize your projects if you've never used something like that before. And hopefully that'll, you know, help you keep it organized. So it's not all going to stay in your head. And you may have been doing that all along because it was, you were able to do that because of the environment you were in but it's just not going to be that way anymore. So, well, I did mention, I didn't want to mention one thing real quick. So as I mentioned, it's, it's March 15th, uh, a Sunday, my wife and I, she's working with me on this project now that she's not working with her other business anymore. She's back to archaeology for little projects that we've got going on. And, uh, We came down on Friday, the rest of the crew shows up on Monday, but we came down on Friday to kind of get a jump on some of the surveys so I could get my own handle as the field director on some of the logistics down here and get a little bit of survey done because we've got a somewhat of a tight time frame on the other end of this project as well. And I just, I I estimated what it was going to be because I have worked in this area before, but you never really know until your boat's on the ground. So I wanted to get out here and see if it was going to at least match the estimates and, and see where we fit on that. So we came down early now, we came down Friday afternoon from Reno, Nevada, and Friday afternoon, just a few hours before that, uh, Trump was heard mentioning that now nothing concrete was said and nothing's happened since as of March 15th, but he mentioned considering possibly closing the borders to California and Washington. And I had actually mentioned that in the Archaeotech podcast. I said, hey, this is probably way out and would never happen, but what it, let's, let's think about how archaeology would be if they closed the borders to, to some big States or to all States, (laughs) just restricted travel. And then, and then the next day I hear that this is something that he's considering. And I don't know how, you know, what that's like or what's not, but you know, I'm pretty sure California has been preparing that for that ever since they put up the agricultural stations. I know that those people standing there waving you through without even talking to you have machine guns sitting right inside there and they can just close the borders in a, in a heartbeat. (laughs) I'm pretty sure California is ready for it. So,
3: Well, also, I, anyway. I have a feeling politically and, politically and socially, there's a huge portion of people in California who would love the borders to be closed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. To start our own country. I, this is the first time where finally we might be able to succeed. You know, just go right. ahead. Close those borders and we'll see you around.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, in thinking about this, let's think about let's think about the situation over the summer. Because we're we're starting up the field season in a lot of different areas of the country. And as we move through into warmer temperatures, we're kicking off the field season more and more. Now, everybody thinks that even if this virus gets really, really bad in the next month or so, it almost has to subside at least a little bit coming into summertime because viruses have a hard time living in warmer climates and warmer environments. So, as we warm up, theoretically, it should start to die off. And the the hope is that it dies off completely and doesn't pick up again when it gets cold again. But so let's just assume that this goes for another couple of months and it starts. it gets, it's going to get worse before it gets better. We all know that. Uh, But hopefully all this social distancing and closing of things makes that not true. But if it does and things continue like this, I mean, how, how do you, this is really going to affect shovel bombs in particular. I think a lot of people who have, who are part of offices in bigger states where there's a lot of work in that state will probably be okay. But shovel bums that are like ones, you know, living or working in Utah and they find a project in California, but now they can't get there, but there isn't enough work in Utah for them to do. And so, you know, now they're stuck where they're going to go and, you know, travel between states for work like that is going to get really tough and it's going to, uh, it's going to really matter. Heather.
2: Yeah, I really, I've been they, That's uh, the as needed population has really been on my heart, just, you know, just kind of trying to anticipate where this whole thing is going to go. And I'm, I'm hoping that we as professionals, uh, whether it be, we're in a, in a mom and pop business like you, Chris, or someone like myself that works for a larger environmental firm, that we really kind of look outside of the um, easy business model and consider possibly swapping Mm -hmm. projects. Now, I know that's not going to be easy, but, um, you know, where we're CRM companies, companies are starting to work with each other to, you know, for those that are very state specific where, okay, you know what, we were going to be in Arizona, but we can't now. And, you know, communicating with other CRM firms and where they may, Have a job in California that they can't support now, and and we're really going to have to work with each other to make that happen, and not like dig our heels in and try to you know hold on to things and stop work in an effort to hold on to everything that we have. Now I know that that seems kind of antithetical to business and giving up work, but you know if it if it's done and everybody or enough people. Uh, agree or or work with that concept, it doesn't necessarily have to be separate uh, or the antithesis of of, um, profit. It can actually benefit. It can promote profit. Um, But it just means there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have to buy into it. And... I hope that if it gets to that point that people really start thinking outside the box. Um, Number one, just to keep projects moving. And number two, so that our as-needed staff have ongoing work, that they're not uh, put in such a position that they can't survive.
3: That was one of my biggest concerns because I know how much effort um, employers here in the Bay Area have put into trying to find ways for folks to work at home and trying to find ways for school to continue on at home. I mean, we were given not really lesson plans, but all the assignments that need to be finished. And then, you know, my wife and I, fortunately, we have the kind of jobs where we can work from home. Uh, We're able to actually set up some kind of schedule for us to be able to uh, uh, make sure our kids are still doing lessons while they're out of school, but also so that we can both Work, you know, so certain blocks of time I'm working certain blocks of time she's working and essentially the time, you know, before the kids wake up and then after they go to sleep is then also additional work time. But I mean, fortunately, we're able to be in those kind of positions, but I was absolutely wondering, you know, what happens to folks who are field techs that are supposed to be on some kind of Forest Service grant And, you know, they're shutting down all kinds of stuff. So even beyond closing the borders, like we saw what happened during the sequestration, what happened to CRM uh, after, Mm -hmm. you know, Forest Service and BLM and everybody else were forced to not work, uh, even without pay. You know, we saw how things kind of got trashed on the ground in some of the national parks, but also how, you know, the SHA was, you know, tons of people couldn't even make it. They couldn't get paid. They didn't show up. And uh, I... I just wonder about administering these contracts that are given out to do work for government agencies when they're saying that they're going to close entire city governments or close entire forest service. I wonder if, you know, how are companies going to be able to uh, fill that gap and keep people paid and keep them on the payroll?
1: Yeah. And building on that as well, uh, I'm interested in, well, like, like your thoughts on this, Heather, if you guys have talked about this at all, because, you know, you're, you're an employer and you work for a, a decently sized company, but let's say... Um, let's say uh, there's a lot of field schools. Cause Bill, you were talking about this as well. Let's say there's a lot of field schools that just can't get their ducks in a row in the next couple of months because of restrictions and end up canceling the field school. Maybe the virus is completely over. It doesn't matter. And maybe their field school is in a place where it also wouldn't matter and, and everything is done, but the field school itself has to be canceled because of various administrative reasons of not being able to get it going. What do we do about the entire pool of new undergrads that are leaving the field, that are leaving college this May and June and are expecting to find jobs in CRM uh, after they have a field school or something like that and uh, and get that minimum requirement that most of us require? And then by the end of summer, you know, they're looking for jobs in CRM and it, CRM companies aren't hiring them because they didn't have the field school. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal.
2: From my perspective as an employer, I actually do not require, I mean, I, if I have a real busy time and I have to hire people right now and I don't have time to train you, then yeah, I'm, I am going to be looking for somebody that has experience. More than often, I'm looking for somebody who has CRM experience. Mm -hmm. I'm, to me, a field school, I don't know what you were taught, to be honest with you. And a lot of times you dig way too slow. Um, and (laughs) You know, you dig like an academic, and that's not helpful to me. So, you know, I try to get out in front of things and hire people way ahead of time and start training them. I love training. I think maybe it's just because I miss teaching. and so it's a opportunity for me to to teach. So I never mind train training. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. So um, for me, for somebody not to have a field school on their resume, doesn't usually dissuade me from hiring them. It's more my conversation with them and whether or not I feel that just with at least doing the best I can with an interview and looking at the way they present themselves on paper, that they're trainable. I want to know if they're trainable. And if they're trainable, it doesn't matter to me if you have a field school or not, because I can make that up in one in one project, really one 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 week or two week project. I can train you myself and then I get to train you the way I want you to be trained. So yeah, that's my perspective on it.
1: All right. Well, before we get into anything else, I think that's a good point to take our last break and then come back and wrap this up. Hopefully not the last Sierra Mark podcast. Hopefully we're all around in two weeks to do another one, but let's wrap this one up and <laughs> uh, come back on the other side.
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.
1: All right. Welcome back to the Serum Archaeology Podcast, episode 186. And something we were talking about in the break here, uh, because it's impacting our recording, and, uh, and and has been for a while, so I don't think it's virus related, but it's something we were talking about on uh, another show, is internet speeds. You guys might be noticing as you're working from home remotely, that your internet connectivity Health or, or integrity is degrading uh, because a lot more people are working at home and a lot more people are doing video conferencing. Yeah. A lot more people are doing um, a lot of things that they maybe wouldn't have been doing normally. Now people use the internet at work too, obviously, but working from home is just a it's a different thing, and people feel the need to connect with each other a little more in a in a you know conferencing sort of way. So all those meetings that you would have at work. They're going to be happening over Zoom or over Microsoft Teams or Skype or something like that. And that's going to be sucking up a lot of bandwidth during the day. And uh, people just need to be prepared for that as well. It's going to be an impact. So uh, let's talk about uh, some other stuff that could be happening here. Um, I, I mentioned one good thing is that people might listen to more podcasts and consume more media, <laughs> which is time for makes, makes it time for us to ramp up our <laughs> efforts on that front. It'd be nice to see some new shows coming out or some new... Uh, some new podcasts or some new things that we can produce easily, and and you know, uh, monitoring the social distancing regulations and things like that, and uh, and still get some new content out there. So that could be a that could be a good thing. But, um, Heather, you mentioned some stuff about government projects and uh, and closures in our notes here. I think that was you, Heather. But uh, yeah, how's that? Is that impacting you guys yet?
2: Um, actually, I think that that was that you, Bill, that added that in there
1: about the school closure like government projects and government closures.
3: Oh yeah. I did add that about government projects. I mean, as someone who works for the government, I mean, I'm keenly aware of how this whole thing is unfolding and I can only imagine for all of our, I mean, I know what's going on on my end, but I'm salary, right? So <laughs> it's not the same thing, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the people that were supposed to pay, the people that we're working with collaborate, you know, people we were collaborating with, I have no idea how they would get paid or how they would get any of their stuff. So, As far as I'm concerned, the government is not really set up to continue its relationship with contractors or subcontractors, and I can only imagine how this kind of complicates things.
1: Well, that that leads directly into another note that I know Heather put up here, and that we were talking Mm -hmm. about before the recording, which is the California Information Centers. And I've been into a number of these, as I know you have, Heather. And I'll tell you what; it's usually just a sea of you know a few desks in and in a, in yeah. I'm really thinking of the one, the the Northwest Information Center, which is staffed mostly by people at Sonoma State. And the last time I went in there, you know, there's like the director and then there's probably five or six um, either grad Intern. students or interns or people that just work there. Yeah. And and they're all sitting right there dealing with paper, doing record searches, you know, passing stuff back and maps. forth. Yep. And when you go do a record <laughs> search there, yeah, maps, all, all kinds of stuff. So um, if these offices now, obviously, Not being able to go to these offices is going to be a problem if people are restricting travel. Companies are restricting travel. But these are state and government offices. I'm willing to bet those are going to be closed at some point if they're not already. So what about record searches? How are those going to get done?
2: The SCCIC is already, which is down the southern central coast, which is down in Fullerton. They have already, they've Mm -hmm. been sending out emails like crazy since Friday. They are closed down. So um, they're not taking any more appointments indefinitely. They are also, they're not taking any kind of requests whatsoever until they can catch up. So, you know, we're already having to send out all these, you know, call outs to our clients, which incidentally we had already done because the SCCIC has so many counties. They have ended up, uh, they have like a monopoly in that area. I mean, it's, probably a poor word choice, but, um, the problem is, is that they have not, you know, to me personally, Ventura County should go to the CCIC. Uh, they are completely overburdened and understaffed. And because of that, before this whole thing came out, uh, we have been telling our project managers, the Sequoia, you know, people, pro- the Sequoia project managers that we actually, um, have a six to eight week, uh, wait, to- wait period in order to get a record search appointment. And that's crazy. (laughs) And it's unnecessary. Because if you go, if I call the CCIC at University of California, Santa Barbara, I can call and literally get an appointment that day. And there's no problem. So Mm -hmm. there's obviously a workload issue here that is a major, a major issue. And for some other political reasons, it's not being fixed. And it's wrong in my opinion personally and i don't think it, it you know i think it'll be popular with some and not popular with others that um i think it's an ethical question uh we have a responsibility as archaeologists to publish and that publishing is because we're supposed to be sharing our information so that we can build on knowledge right well if we are turning in our reports and our mm-hmm. site records and they're not being put into the system for years and years how is that working and then if we can't, in an expedient manner, get a record search done, and technically, you really shouldn't be doing a search, if you're doing a phase one, let's say, which is usually why you do a, a, a record search, how are you, you really shouldn't be doing the survey until you know what you have out there, unless you've already worked in that area and you can get a, you already yeah. have a sense, but you shouldn't be doing the survey. So that's basically a, you know, you have, you can't do anything, really. When it comes to results, you can do nothing until you have that record search. And that, it's, it's uh, so wrong on so many levels, and there's no reason for it because the workload is completely bottlenecked right now. And uh, there's no reason for it because right. we have other information centers that are sitting, twiddling their thumbs with plenty of time. So um, I think, first of all, it's an antiquated system. And you know you look at other other states that have everything online. And, you know, we were talking about the, you know, loops that you have to jump through with that, but it's certainly a lot easier than being able to do absolutely nothing for six to eight weeks.
1: Yeah. In some of the states with stuff online, too, it does become an issue because um, like Nevada has a a relatively decent system, the NefCris system. Uh, But that being said, not everything is actually in it because they haven't had a chance to put everything in it. New stuff goes in there pretty easily, um, but not everything is in it. And I've got information that's about, I don't know nine years old from Utah. So I don't know what their situation is now, but back in when I was part of a record search back in like 2009 or something like that. uh, So even more than 10 years ago, their method of getting things in digitally was as it was pulled from the archives, as it was pulled from the records, it was added to the system digitally, right? So they weren't going through at the time. Again, they may have fixed all this, but at the time they weren't going through and just proactively putting a bunch of stuff in the online system, they were doing it as people pulled them. So theoretically the stuff that people wanted to see would get put in digitally, but that honestly doesn't make any sense because if you're, if you're pulling, putting all the stuff in digitally that was pulled for a certain survey area, well, nobody's going to survey that survey area again for what, 10 years in, in most mm-hmm. circumstances. And, 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 so what the hell, what's the point? <laughs> if, it's, if it's already been surveyed, you've already done the record search there. It's already been surveyed. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird system, but I think that's how some states are handling it. And you're right. It's a really sad, uh, state of affairs.
3: In many places they have, and I don't really know how the funding for this worked, but I know exactly what you're talking about, how the, you know, use of those records, was the impetus for them to digitize them. And I mean, I, I showed up in Arizona and Washington after they had already done what they were going to do. So I ended up benefiting directly from Uh, I ended up benefiting directly from a digitized system. But in the state of Washington, not when I first got there, but after I'd been there a few months, they rolled out Wizard. And I think that one was the best one I've ever worked with, where once you've gotten your background check from uh, the State Historic Preservation, or uh, there it's the Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation. Like once you've already gotten that passed, then you were given a password and everything, and you could use your email of your employer to get into the system. And then you could look for a bunch of stuff, including the recent reports that have been submitted, a lot of them were just on PDF, so you could actually get many of the reports. Uh, the bigger ones, going back to the 90s and 80s and stuff, you still had to actually find a way to get. But you could also see a map of where all the projects were at and where all the uh, archaeology sites and their boundaries and everything. Now, once again, this was, you know, 1980s and, and on, so I have no idea about the old stuff. In, in Arizona, they had a very similar thing, too, as site site which once again, once you'd pass the uh, background check, you could get in and you could look at things. However, in Arizona, you still had to formally file to the state, Arizona State Museum for a records check. And then that was your official records check. So even though you could look and see all the sites and make your own map, you still had to get concurrence from the state historic preservation office. And it seems like that's a, you know, kind of a bottleneck, but what ended up happening is, you know, you're paying the fee for the, for membership to as site, And there's X amount of users. But in order to make sure that people aren't just digitizing magical data or just using whatever they felt like, they were, you know, double checking and would send you a list in the, you know, polygon shape files and stuff to the company of where that site's at. So if a site's, you know, location had changed, then you would have the most recent thing on how that had been expanded or how pieces didn't matter. And that might not be stuff that was read, you know, readily available, but also, they would go and look at all the ancient sites that were dug in the early 1900s and say, "No, there was excavations in 1907 at this thing," and you know it would it would help out on that. And those things weren't all digitized, so having those things like that in the internet is totally functional. But then once again, it goes back to your uh, discussion about workflow and people working remotely, right? So will people actually stop watching Netflix long <laughs> enough to make sure that that table's done? And you know, can you get the person who's normally slammed? mapping at your office with a high powered desktop on their laptop to produce the same kind of GIS. Like, you know, that's, if you're working from home, those are the kind of questions there.
1: Or, Hey, let's, let's think of thinking about GIS. Maybe the GIS department can switch to something like QGIS because they're spending 80% of their time producing location and sketch maps and don't need the power of Esri. So they can consider that as well. You know, um, it's all about using the right tool for the right job.
3: 20% of the time. I'm still fond of the hammer. Well,
1: <laughs> I, I hear you. I sometimes hear you, you got to use it. But hey, in the last segment of this podcast, I want to talk about some of the lasting effects that this could have and what it could mean for field techs as, as Heather was mentioning earlier. Because this thing could all be over in a few weeks, but the lasting impacts of this are going to be months and months and months. Because if we aren't able to do record searches in one of the Let's just take California. California does probably... uh, I have no stats on this, but just from what I know and and, and from what you see, (laughs) California has a lot of uh, construction, a lot of development, a lot of things constantly going on. And if if a large portion of that requires a cultural resources assessment, and because of the California Environmental Quality Act and other things, it does. So if if a large portion of that requires that to be done... And yet we can't do record searches at the information center, which is uh, an initial usually requirement for some of these projects. And so that stalls and can't get done. And then let's say, I don't know, maybe construction companies, maybe some other things are are saying, hey, we got to restrict who's going out there. We got to restrict all these things that are happening. Now you've got construction projects stacking up and you've got companies not being able to make payroll. You've got all kinds of things happening. And I see places like Apple, you know, you're shutting stores down, but still paying people, and other companies shutting shutting places down, but still paying people. I don't know of very many CRM firms that can shut down and continue to pay people. I mean, it's just it's just not a thing, unless they're you know a larger um, environmental firm, but. Looking at these lasting impacts, we could be dealing with this for a really long time, you know, just because the archaeology is being slowed down and, and can't start again. It might be in a heck of a lot of work for us in five or six months, but it's not going to it's it's going to take a while to uh, to kick back on again in some places.
2: I think that we have, you know, we've talked about this probably, we've, I think we talk about it every podcast since I joined. And <laughs> and that is the fact that, you know, this is an, you have to, as an as-need employee, if you're in any discipline, speak. But specifically for as needed in in CRM, you have to jump on every opportunity you can to show what kind of skill set not only you have, but you might that you have potential for. So this is an opportunity. It actually is a unique opportunity for some as needed that are willing to step outside the box and not only do field work and put their toe in the Mm -hmm. water of, you know what, I'm willing to start writing record search uh, results, you know, that that's. Usually what I start people on when it comes to technical writing, I teach them how to write the results section for a record search and, you know, being, putting your hand up saying, listen, I know there's no field work. I am a quick study. uh, That is, if you are, hopefully (laughs) I'm a quick study and I'll jump in, I'll do whatever you need. (laughs) And I am, I do have some people that have been contacting me and saying, listen, I'll do anything that you need in a lab writing anything. And those are the ones that are going to get the work just because they put their hand up. And so you never know what is going to come from that as an as needed employee, because the more skills that you have, the more employable you are on a full-time basis. So this really could be a segue, a gateway to some people that have been stuck in that as needed, in that as needed population and moving into the full-time market. So um, I don't, I, I think this is a, it's a cool time for people that are willing to seize the moment.
1: Yeah, that is great. Uh, it's great to lo- it's great to recognize that and uh, that goes kind of hand in hand with a side hustle because GIS and other things could be your archaeology side hustle, but we talk about side hustles on almost every podcast too because it's that important to have another skill set that you can possibly fall back on, you know, have something else that you're, that you're doing on the side and, and, and maybe turn Netflix off for a little while when you're in the hotel room <laughs> and, uh, or, or in our case, we always watch HGTV in a hotel room because we don't have cable at home, <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, turn that stuff off and, and, and learn something new, maybe take this opportunity right now. I mean, sure. You might be trying to earn some money, but if you just can't, because literally everything is closed, Sure. Be sad about that. But at the same time, flip on YouTube or flip on something else, go get Skillshare or something and learn something new. It doesn't have to be archaeology related, but learn something new that can possibly bring you some money. Uh, and and maybe it's something you could do digitally as well, which would be even better. But, you know, try that.
2: One more thing when it comes to it's not, not just these tactical, tangible um, skill sets, but also, you know, One thing that people kind of forget is the understanding, uh, the regulatory understanding. And if you have that as an archaeologist, you're hugely employable because so few people have that, especially if you're somebody who is more theoretical based. Um, You went to school and you found, you know what, theory is more my thing, more than, you know, the field. And and so if. That is really lends its well, itself well to learning the regulatory process and and everything that comes with it. So, you know, Thomas King actually just came out with a new book, which is a small little primer, and I've just started reading it. I think it's excellent. I mean, it's smaller than his mm-hmm. some of his other books, yeah. but um, supposedly he says it's his last book. <laughs> but I think that <laughs> we'll see, Tom. We'll see if it is. But. Um, I actually hope it isn't. I hope it isn't. But anyway, um, I think that it is on you. Nobody's going to teach you regulatory language and understanding. You're going to have to do it yourself. And it takes a lot of uh, not only reading and studying, but seeping yourself into practical um, practical understanding of it. And it takes time. So it's better to start that now, just like you said, doing it, you know, in the evening after being out in the field and start steadying yourself up so that you can start moving up. Mm-hmm. Excellent point, Bill.
1: I'm
3: glad you mentioned that because, well, two things. It'd be great to have Tom King on the show again. It's been about 180 episodes. So check in, he has written a new book and he actually edited, I think even one or two versions of cultural resource law and practice. So especially talking about a new paradigm, he's actually kind of a fan of changing the National Historic Preservation Act and that these constant wolf tickets are not actually bad. They possibly give us a new way to move forward and stuff. So he, it would be good to have him on the show again. I, I totally forgot about, you know, how great of a um, guest speaker But the other thing that Mm -hmm. I've just become increasingly aware aware of is any kind of social media or online publication of any any kind of stuff on the internet, archaeologists just stare at it like you know, like it's, you know, Haley's comment or the end of the (laughs) world or something that you would ever try to do social media or Google Analytics or like start a blog and, and kind of break it down or do your own podcast. Like every single person, every time I mention that kind of stuff, they just stare at me like you know, well, I don't even know where to start that. I was kind of like, but you somehow know how to extract enough carbon from an ancient antler to, you know, check out the ratio of carbon 12 to carbon 14. Do you know how complicated that process is? But we do that. (laughs) But you don't know how to just open Microsoft Word and put something on the internet and then pay attention to Google and write these like, they're way less complicated. But I keep hearing people that are you know, just they, they don't really actually think that social media strategies or anything online is something they could do. That's a side hustle in its own self.
1: Yeah, indeed. All right, guys. Well, that's enough for now. Hopefully, we'll get another chance at this, and I think we'll I think we'll probably all be okay. Uh, I just uh, I fear for the industry a little bit, but I think it will rebound at some point, and hopefully, we come out stronger on the other side with a a workforce that understands working from home is not the enemy, and we can save a little money on our project costs by doing that, but also you know, maybe people come out with a few more skills that they can use uh, beyond this. So trying to look at the bright sides of all this, we'll see if that happens. So, all right. Well, that's it for this week. Yeah.
3: I said, just make sure your kids stay alive and and, and yeah, they don't hurt your (laughs) mental health.
1: (laughs) All right. Again, thanks everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash CRMarchpodcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field or, you know, a hospital. Goodbye.
2: Goodbye. Bye. I'm going to be the optimist. We will see you next podcast. (laughs)
4: <laughs> from a great distance
2: <laughs> from a great i <laughs> uh,
4: we'll
1: see you just stand back and <laughs> <In laughs> <All that right. laughs> this show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective
2: this has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
1: Thanks everyone for, Jesus. I'm literally reading it and I've done it 186 times. All right, here we go. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 U.S. dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.
0: You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.